Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church in Kannapolis, North Carolina. As student pastor, Justin Stevers shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. Lord, you are so good to us. Lord, I pray right now that you will be so near to us that we will experience your goodness. We will experience your presence. We will know that you love us, that you have created everything that exists from the galaxies to the atoms, and you love us individually, Lord. So I pray that we will focus on that. We will focus on you, that we will hear you speaking to us through your word, Lord, and I pray that we will receive it in our hearts. God, you alone are worthy to be praised, so we give you this time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, I'm, uh, as you guys know, Lizzie is uh, great with child. She, we could be just sprinting out of here at any second. So I have plenty of, of landing spots throughout this sermon in case we have to just boogie. Um, everyone's talking about Lizzie, but, but everyone should know I'm suffering too. Um, <laughs> you know, I uh, have recently started lifting weights with a buddy, and boy, am I sore. Lizzie talks about her legs being sore. Man. Also, I was uh, brushing my teeth the other day, and I brushed a little too hard and jabbed my gums, and I'm really, thank you, who said that? <laughs> the trials of Job are, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, I'm sorry, that, that sounds bad, forgive me. Um, forget everything I just said, I, I say that to say, uh, be praying for Lizzie, you could pray for me as well, for other reasons, um, but pray for Lizzie um, and me and uh, things are about to get crazy. But we're here to dive into God's word. So if you have your Bible, let's uh, start turning to 1 Corinthians. We're gonna be in chapter eight. Last week, last time, uh, we did 40 verses in about 37, 36 minutes. I got, I got close to my guarantee. Um, if I was Domino's, you would've got your pizza for free. But I'm not Domino's. But you got, no, no, let's go make a, a bad joke. Um, I did 40 verses. Now we're just going to do 13. So it should be easy. Two points and we're out of here. So some of you guys remember the ancient, ancient of days. We talked about ancient words. Uh, the ancient days of the 1990s. 30 years ago in 1990, I was there. I remember the 90s a little bit. But 30 years ago, in 1993, a movie came out that completely changed how all movies following it would be made. For right or for wrong, like it or hate it, this movie specifically changed how all other movies would be made post-1993. And it wasn't necessarily because this movie was an amazing ground-shaking story, although it was, it was ground-shaking. It was unique, it was a box office hit. It wasn't the first movie to use CGI, computer-generated imagery. It wasn't the first, but it was the 
kind of the first one to mainstream it, to mainstream CGI, uh, that where the CGI, these computer images in this live action movie, looked almost as good, if not better, than the man-made props that they used instead. Do you guys know what movie I'm talking about? Anyone? I heard someone. Jurassic Park, whoever said that? 10 gold stars, 10 gold stars. Jurassic Park, fun movie, great family-friendly movie, right? No, no, <laughs> scary movie. I remember being terrified of one of the little dinosaurs with the, the things that spread out like that. But if you haven't seen this movie yet, uh, a bunch of scientists said, hey, we can find, we, we, we know the genetic code so well that we can make dinosaurs alive today. So they, they create this giant dinosaur zoo, uh, which is a, a great idea. What could possibly go wrong with a giant dinosaur zoo? Well, it turns out everything can go wrong. Uh, the dinosaurs are big meanies, and throughout the story, there is, there's one character and one, one line that's just philosophically profound. I think it might be one of the most famous lines in the movie, but before everything gets all messed up, before everything goes downhill, these, these guys are meeting with a bunch of the head honchos of Jurassic Park, and this character, played by Jeff Goldblum, he, he, he starts foreshadowing the challenges that are going to arise, and he starts saying, man, you guys really didn't think this one through, right? This is, sounds like a, a foolish endeavor. And the, the head guy, he says, no, you're, you're, you're getting the wrong idea. Our scientists, he says, have done things that no scientist has ever done before. And then the famous line comes, Jeff Goldblum says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And it's a little mic drop moment, right? And, and you know, who, who are we in 1993? Well, I'm not there, but you guys, uh, all of us in the theaters in 1993, what do we know? It's gonna be fun. What does Jeff Goldblum know? But the movie and multiple movies afters and reboots and a few just horrible sequels later will show that Jeff Goldblum was right the whole entire time. Just because we could do something doesn't mean that we should do that thing. And well, tonight, guess what? We're gonna find out that Jeff Goldblum wasn't completely original. Our favorite writer, Paul, is saying very similar thoughts in our passage today. Our, our, our favorite writer, Paul, is saying, is addressing issues in this messed up church, and he's saying just because you can do something, just because you could do something, doesn't mean you should. So we're, like I said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and if you remember, Paul is addressing all these issues in this church. First, he addresses disunity, then he addresses immorality within the church, then he addresses fighting and lawsuits, then more immorality. Last time we talked about marriage, and now he's on to his sixth or so issue that he's addressing in this church. 
And this is a start of a, a longer section that has to do with food sacrificed to idol. And the question is, to eat or not to eat? That is the question. Uh, uh, again, we, we may see this topic. We may see this topic of food sacrificed to idols, and we say, well, okay, I don't see that happening around my life anymore, right? I, I'm not going to the Harris Teeter and with a shrine up there and them chopping up meat to sacrifice to that shrine. I don't see that in my life. But I think, again, just like a bunch of the other principles we've been seeing Paul lay out, we see that this isn't just useful to us today. It is super applicable, super helpful, super urgent to you and me today to the church at large and to Central Baptist Church. So with that said, if you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you don't mind, we, let's stand as we honor God's word. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Last week I only read one verse, so this is making up for it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. And if any man think that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in this world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better Neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend." Amen. You can have a seat. So in this passage, I want us to see really one 
big truth, two small points. Two big points, but I'm going to call them small. The Christian's first instinct should be to love other Christians, love the church, love those in the church before anything else. So our first instinct should be to love others before we do anything else. That's what I think Paul is getting at here. Uh, like First Corinthians, uh, no, not First Corinthians, Philippians chapter two. I talked about a few weeks ago. Philippians chapter two says we must think about others more than we even think about ourselves. We must look out for others' needs more than we look out for our own needs. And because we love others sacrificially, we have to be like Jeff Goldblum. And we have to say, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should for someone else's benefit. So Paul goes on into this paragraph and he, he's talking about, should people of this church eat meat? It's a prevalent question for us today, right? Are there any vegans in here? Raise your hand. Um, no judgment here. If you want to be a vegan, be a vegan. I just love Chick-fil-A too much and Thai food. Lizzie and I had some pad si u earlier today, and that stuff was good. But vegans are not around in this time in Corinth saying, hey, you need to be a vegan. You sinner. That's not what's happening here. No, what's happening here is, is in this day, you, like I said, you, you didn't just go to a food lion to grab a steak. You didn't just go to the Samuel's Club to grab a steak, you had to go to the temple. All meat went first to the temple. People would take their meat, they would sacrifice it to these idols of different gods in a religious practice, celebrating, worshiping these false gods. That's where your meat would go. And then from the temple, the, the good stuff, the leftover meat would either be eaten there as maybe a celebratory meal or uh, sold to the market. So you can see how this is kind of a pressing issue for the Corinthians at this time. There were Christians here in Corinth that used to be pagans, used to worship their false gods by going to the temple, offering a filet mignon, and then enjoying that. That's, used, that, that, that's how they used to worship their god. Well, many gods. So you can see how now that they're Christians, now that they know, hey, those false gods, they're not, they're not really gods anymore, but you can see how they would still be uncomfortable with that action of eating meat. You can see how this is something that the church is always going to face. There will be new believers that will have to ask, how should I live my Christian life? Do I still need to pray facing a certain direction? Do I eat certain foods? Do I hang out with these friends? Can I listen to this music? Can I have these hobbies? Like we saw in last chapter, do, do I stay married? There will be a million questions that new believers will rightly have to ask. So how are we going to answer them? Well, Paul answers here by showing how we 
lovingly as the body of Christ think through questions like this. So we see that Christians are to lovingly think about the body of Christ, think about other believers, think about their brothers and sisters in Christ before ever acting for themselves. And they do this first by realizing that love balances knowledge. Verses 1 through 6 show that that love balances knowledge. Again, like, like last chapter, Paul is responding to a series of questions that the Corinthians had for him. And he, he indicates that he's answering a different question. He indicates that he's moving on to a, a next question in this book. You can, you can see how this, it's structured whenever he says now or now concerning or now about. Paul is saying now this question. And, and he's moving on to the next question. And these are Paul's uh, transition to that question. And he, and he says, Now, as to touching things offered unto idols, verse 1, we know that we all have knowledge. And the Corinthians were probably saying that last part that Paul said. The Corinthians were probably saying, Hey, we know that we have knowledge, so we should eat these things. This, this knowledge could be what Paul talks about later, a, a spiritual gift of knowledge he'll talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13 and 14. But I think this knowledge that he's talking about here is explained in verse 4, that these Corinthians have sound theology. They know their Bible, and they know that the Bible says there's no God but one. These, these false idols, these false gods, aren't true gods. So, what does it matter if I, I eat a filet mignon that was given to this piece of wood earlier? It's just a piece of wood. That's what these guys are saying. They, they know that these, these idols are silly, they're man-made objects, they're not real gods. They have the right answer but Paul goes on in verse 1, and he says, Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge leads to conceit. But charity edifies. But love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. These, these first set of Christians who are saying, We have knowledge. They have the right answers, but they have the wrong attitude. Paul is saying that Answers combined with arrogance tears down. It does not build up, it puffs up. It makes someone conceited. I think all of us can think of examples of people who have answers combined with arrogance, right? When you go to Bible college, you see this firsthand. Answers and arrogance are an obnoxious combination. So I decided to fight against that temptation by never getting an A in any of the classes I attended. I wanted to stay humble. But, 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 but Paul here isn't saying that knowledge itself is wrong. We are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the deeper our theology is, the deeper our knowledge of God is, the higher our doxology is our worship of God can go. 
So we can love someone the more that we know that person, right? I can love Lizzie the more that I know her. We love God the more that we know him. Knowledge itself is not the problem, but knowledge without love is the problem. It doesn't build up. It puffs up. It leads to arrogance and division. And Paul isn't concerned that these Christians who are saying that that they're free to eat meat, he's not concerned that they're right. He's concerned about how they are right. And Paul shows that sometimes being right is actually wrong because you were right in order to puff up, not build up. Verses 2 and 3. If any man think that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. God knows him. Arrogant knowledge shows us that we actually know nothing, but a knowledge that is balanced by love, a knowledge that leads us to loving God, shows that we are known by him, shows that we know this God. I've known people who, who know all the right answers. They've been to Sunday school. They've grown up in the church. They know all the right answers about Christianity. I'm, I'm thinking of someone specifically now who, who even taught me a lot of the answers to Christianity, a lot of the arguments for the faith, a lot of the arguments for their position or whatever, but they don't know God. They know answers, but they don't know God. They don't have love. They have a head knowledge, not a heart knowledge of their creator. And I pray that this isn't anyone in this room tonight. Faking Christianity won't get you anywhere. You will never fool God. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. Step into his love so you can be, like verse 3 says, so you can be known by God forgiven of your sins and being a child of God. Paul goes on to show in verses four through six that yes, this knowledge is right. These gods are not real. And he gives us this, this awesome Trinitarian reminder. But to us, there is but one God, the father of whom are all things. And we in him. All things are from him. We exist for him. And he goes on. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we by him. All things are through him. We exist through Christ. We worship one God who exists co-equally, co-eternally in three distinct persons. Who created all things. He holds all things together by his will. He created the giant galaxies, he created the little ants in your front yard, and he cares about you and me. He loves us, and he is the true living God. We worship the Father for whom are all things. We worship the Son through whom are all things, and we worship the Spirit by whom are all things. What a great God we serve. And yes, you were right. These idols are nothing. But you need to be right and have love. One without the other is useless. 
So that's Paul's first reminder. Then in 7 through 13, we see Paul's second reminder that love limits freedom. I think I, I even mentioned this point a few chapters earlier, but this is a necessary truth that Paul is showing us here. Our love causes us to think of others and use our freedom that is found in Christ responsibly. We live, newsflash, in America. We live in the home of the free, the land of the brave, right? We, as a people, have a hard time of accepting limits on freedom since way before 1776. In a lot of ways, we are actually the unique scheme in history and how much we love liberty. That, that we have such a hunger for freedom and keeping, any, keeping that freedom by any means necessary. Like that's, that's unique in world history. And I'm listening to this, this giant book right now. It's written by a, a historian who's not a Christian, but, but he's an honest historian who's just, all he's doing is tracing how unique Christian thought is, how different Christian thought is, and how it's shaped the Western world, Europe and its ancestors. I don't know, Europe, America, Australia, those who Europe has shaped. Christian thought uniquely has shaped how everyone thinks in our culture. How it's created the, the framework for how anyone thinks of religion, science, human rights, freedoms. The, the people shouting human rights the loudest, even against religion, are saying it from a very religious perspective. They just don't know it. They're sitting on a limb and sawing it off. That's, that's the world. They're, they're living in our world. They're swimming in our, they're using our thought and just are not consistent with it. But, but anyway, as, as Americans, we, we own this idea of freedom. We are obsessed with it for good reason. But even the most freedom-loving American knows that you can't always be 100% libertarian free all the time, right? Even the most freedom-loving American understands that there are right and good limits to our freedom. Sometimes that sound, sounds bad to say. But no, there, there are right and good limits to our freedom. Three that we can all agree on. Uh, first, reality limits our freedom. Just because I want to do something, just because I want to levitate and fly out that door, doesn't mean I can't. There's people who think that they can be tethered or untethered from reality. No, we still live in the real world. And reality limits our freedom. This is a good thing. We can say that we're free to do things until we're blue in the face, but reality has something to say about it. Here's a good one. Government limits our freedom. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Government limits our freedom. And Romans 13 shows that this can be a good thing. Sometimes it can be a bad thing. But Romans 13 says, no, this is, this is done to promote justice. I know all of you in this room are the best drivers around. You can go down Interstate 85 at 90 miles an hour, and it doesn't matter. You could probably go down Earnhardt uh, Boulevard at 90 miles an hour, and it won't be any sweat off of your brow. 
But those other drivers on the road, they're not as good as you. They're a lot worse than you. And because of that, we all have to follow speed limits. We all have to limit our freedom. I paid for my speedometer to go up to, I don't know, probably 80, but it probably has 80 miles an hour up there. Uh, I paid for all those 100 miles an hour on my speedometer, but guess what? I don't get to use all 100 because of all those bad drivers out there, I have to go the speed limit. And this is a good thing, right? It, It lets me get from point A to point B safely. And I don't even think, sometimes I'm not even like conscious when I'm driving. I'm awake, I'm paying attention, but, but I remember a few times where I drove, maybe uh, when I worked at the coffee shop back home, I remember a few times when I drove early in the morning from my house to the coffee shop, and I got to the coffee shop, and I, I was like, how did I get here? Well, thank goodness for speed limits, right? It's a good thing that the government limits our freedom in that extent. And then we see, most importantly for us, because because it's not as enforced upon us, but it's a decision within us, love limits our freedom. This is a good thing. Because you love your husband, because you love your wife, you limit your freedom and you don't go on dates with other people. You have chosen to forsake the world and love your spouse alone. You are limited, and your dating options are limited to one. Well, here in these verses, we see that we are limited in our freedom because of our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We limit our freedom because we love the members of Central Baptist Church, and we want what's best for them. And Paul is laying out a concept that he teaches here and he teaches in Romans chapter 14. And there are some some great parallels in these two passages. But there's also some noticeable differences in these two passages. Paul lays out the idea of what we would call a weaker brother and a stronger brother. And he's not talking about physically, you know, I've been lifting weights, I'm the stronger brother now. No, he's not talking about physically stronger brother. The the weaker brother here is the one who has the more sensitive conscience and cannot eat meat. And I believe uh, that a contrast with with this passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, with, with this section and with Romans 14 is the weaker brother here has a sensitive conscience. The, the weaker brother in Romans 14 has maybe a more legalistic leaning conscience. But both places we see that the, the weaker brother is, is technically wrong, but even so, the stronger brother's responsibility is to look out for the weaker brother. We read in verses 9 and verse 13, so put your finger on verse 9 and read with me. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. And then skip down to verse 13. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, or if food causes my brother to fall, I will eat no flesh while this world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. 
lest I make my brother fall. Do you see how seriously Paul is taking this seemingly trivial matter? You who know all the right answers, think about your brother and your sister in Christ before you do anything. Paul said, if meat will make my brother's faith even hurt a little bit, if meat will hurt my brother's faith a little bit, I will never eat meat again. Wow. Some of us love bacon. Could you say that? Paul is so concerned about doing everything to build up a brother's faith that he is willing to give up anything for that cause. Paul is saying their souls are on the line. Because think about it, these, these former pagans, they, they worship these gods. If they see this strong Christian eating meat, they might say, well, this is how I, I worship my God. Well, I mean, I guess it's okay to continue to worship this God. And then because of that, that, that former pagan has slipped back into his paganism. I remember reading about World War II, how men and women who were not overseas were still fighting here at home. Those who were overseas, they were fighting the war, but men and women here were making brutal sacrifices so that they could help support the effort, support the cause. They were bringing less food home. They couldn't use certain metals or rubber or gasoline. And people all over the states were willing to make that difficult sacrifice for the sake of winning the war. And Paul is showing a similar mentality that this is not optional for a Christian. He is willing to do without so that others can grow and thrive in Christ. And with how infinitely important World War II was, the spiritual war for our souls is even infinitely more important. And this is convicting to me, and I think it could be for you. Do you think, like Paul, that of, of other Christians first and foremost? Do we see how serious this spiritual battle is and say, by any means necessary, I will look after the growth of my brother and sister in Christ? Or are we willing to say, by any means necessary, will I reach my neighbor with the gospel? Paul says we will, he will never eat meat again if it came down to it. Would you be able to sacrifice that much for someone else's soul? Would you think of their needs before your own? Our love should seek their good. But also we, we see here, as I said before, in Romans 14 and, and in this passage, that the stronger brother needs to be sensitive to the weaker brother, but technically, objectively, the, the stronger brother is correct. The stronger brother is right. Like I said before, they, they have the right answer. Eating meat is not a sin. Worshiping idols is, and we'll talk about that later in later chapters. But to answer this specific question, meat is not a sin. And again, love will balance your knowledge and balance your freedom. Are you willing to put this away even though you know you are right for the sake of their conscience, for the sake of someone else. Someone else. We see in verse 10, he 
Paul talks about this person's conscience. This is an important New Testament word that's used kind of three different ways. The word conscience can be used as sort of like a stop sign. Um, don't do this sin. It's a giant red flashing stop sign. It can be used as a compass. What decision is best to make? But here, I think it's used as a mirror. Can I, can I look into my conscience and see that this is a right thing? This is a good thing. This is a God-glorifying thing. And with this, I think there's a, a necessary note that the weaker brothers and sisters are not supposed to be content with having a weak conscience or a weak understanding of the Bible. Now, no weaker brother, as Paul calls them, no weaker brother decides to be a weaker brother on purpose. They probably aren't even aware that they are missing the mark. So this goes to all of us. Our consciences are on a spectrum, on every issue that we can think of. And we have to go with our conscience, but our conscience is not infallible. Our conscience can be wrong. There's a spectrum. Our conscience can be too sensitive and too callous. Too sensitive, like these, these brothers here, or too callous, where, man, I just don't care anymore. Well, there's this spectrum, and we are all called to calibrate every thought, every action with the biblical answer. And this, this takes work, this takes study, this takes discipleship, but every day, every hour, we should be aligning our conscience on any issue with the Bible and what's either explicitly or implicitly taught in God's word. And that means to the one with an overly sensitive conscience on this side, you have to find true biblical freedom in whatever area so that you can better glorify Christ in all areas of your life. You can live in his freedom lest you become a Pharisee. And to the one with the callous conscience over here, you have to find true biblical love that submits to Christ, knowing that he only wants what's good for you. And if you love him, you will keep his commandments, lest you shipwreck your faith, lest you depart from us, showing that you were never of us. So know the Bible, live in God's word, breathe in the word of God, breathe out prayer, and continually align your thoughts and your actions with what the Bible teaches. Legalism, superstitions, even more subtly traditions can creep into our thoughts and push our conscience one way or another. But Grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Live in his word. Live in biblical community. Loving others so that they can grow too. And we will be able to live for God's glory in every area of our lives. So we can practice this love that's balanced, this, this love-balanced freedom that we have in Christ. So uh, as Barry and Karen come up, just three quick reflection points for a couple seconds, then we'll sing a verse. Are you letting love balanced knowledge control you 
are you letting knowledge that puffs up? Are you tempted towards pride or towards love? Second, are you living in, for others? Are you loving others sacrificially? Even those who don't know Christ, are you living for them sacrificially enough to have what we talked about in Sunday school today? Tough discussions? Are you willing to speak hard truths to them? And are you aligning your thoughts and your actions with God's word? His word will never fail you. It will never let you down. Let's reflect for a couple seconds. Let's sing a and then we'll be dismissed in prayer. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.